Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good day already, huh? Life-changing. You know, that's what uh, encounters like this are supposed to be. We're supposed to shift our heart, shift our mind, shift our thoughts toward the things that are really important. Amen? You know, it's been a, it's been a pretty amazing week for all of us, and sometimes weeks go slow, and this one went slow because there was so much in it. Um, but God is just an amazing God, and I want you to know that he wants to speak to you today on what interests you the most and what greatest need you have. So I want you to think about that through this message because God has something to say to you specifically, and he wants to do that. On um, Saturday night, Tammy was asked to go speak at a CrossFit uh, meeting, and they took me along because they needed to see the before picture. Um <laughs> I've made I've cut hundreds of before pictures in athletic magazines for my for life, but anyway uh, we went there and there was uh, a little time of worship and there was this couple who happened to be Catholics and and they were up there singing and leading this and it was just so amazing and I only say that because I love the way the body of Christ touches everybody and everything and it was just kind of neat and as I was sitting there. Um, sometimes you know God will speak to me in a very clear way that I need to write it down. And I don't mean he speaks audibly and I hear it. I mean he speaks in my spirit and my mind and he, and he gives me something that we like to refer to as a word from him. And it was so powerful that I had to just begin to write it down. And I want to read it to you. And I think some of this will make a lot more sense as we go through this message and it all comes together. But um, the, uh, the amazing thing about about what God does is he, he brings us into his presence with words. So this is a word that God gave me on Saturday night. God said, I am, I am forcing America to pray. I want to just pause there for a second because America will not pray as a nation unless they're forced to. Unless something challenges our mind, our safety, captures our attention and moves our emotions, we will not pray. We will do those courtesy prayers to God at our meal or when we are afraid we're going to get a ticket, but we will not pray. And, and this word was so strong that God said, I am forcing America to pray through natural and man-made disasters. I really can't remember a time where there have been more big things that have forced me to pray that has happened in this year. I could go back to 9-11. I could talk about that. We were in the air. We were flying past the Twin Towers when the first plane hit. We looked out our window, and it was life-changing for all of us. But what's happened this year already has forced us to pray. And then God went on to say, our prayer will, will bring about revival of the last days. That I really believe that everything is being laid out by God for a purpose. And he said, do not fear your days and breath are in my hands. The wind blows where it will and so it is with my spirit. Prepare your hearts now. The time is short. These days require faithfulness and power in the Holy Spirit. I'm calling you as an army for the kingdom, warriors who will claim new territory. 
Then he went on to say this, Donald Trump is a blunt instrument in my hands. He will not be deterred by criticism. And let me tell you why that's so important, because when I received this word, I didn't think much about it, about using it in this message. And then that night I went home and through some other research, I came across something that was so interesting that I had, I, I saw how God was putting pieces together. You know, and a, and a sermon is kind of like that. It's, there, there's a science to it, there's an art to it, but mostly there is a spirit of God who brings elements together. And, and sometimes you walk out and you go, Were you, did you read my mail? But to remember the Holy Spirit, what he does is he gathers people together and he, he gathers them in such a way that he can minister to them individually through the message. And as long as we're listening to him, the message has application in all of our lives. So I got home and I came across this. I, I'm a student of history, especially uh, revival history. And in 1949 to 1952, there was a revival that broke out in the New Hebrides Islands, which is a little island off of Scotland. And it's one of those obscure places that, unless you've studied history, you don't know anything about it. And in this little island, there were two old ladies, one that was uh, 82, one that was 84. One of them was completely blind. One of them was so stricken with uh, arthritis that she hardly could move out of the house. But they were great warriors of prayer. And they were praying that God was going to move in that country, in that area of the New Hebrides, and bring about revival. And they were supposed to get a man by the name of Duncan Campbell to come and preach. And so they reached out to Duncan Campbell. And remember, there was no evidence of revival happening. There was nothing happening except these women knew something was going on because they had touched the hand of God. Her names, their names were Peggy and Christine. They continued to pray for a revival. One day, Peggy sent for Duncan Campbell, asking him to go and hold meetings in a small, isolated village. The people of this village were not in favor of revival. Duncan questioned the wisdom of her request. Besides, he added, I have no leading to go to that place. She turned in the direction of the voice. Her sightless eyes seemed to penetrate his soul. Mr. Campbell, if you were living as near to God as you ought to be, he would reveal his secrets to you also. Marianne Smith McLeod, niece of the two intercessors of the Hebrides revival, cousin of Donald Smith, the 15-year-old converted at the revival, immigrated from the Hebride island of Lewis off the coast of Scotland from where she immigrated to America and met a gentleman by the name of Frederick Trump. Marianne Smith McLeod is reported to have met Frederick Trump at a dance where they fell in love. They married on January 1936, the wedding reception for the 25 guests being held at the Carlisle Hotel in Manhattan. On April 5, 1937, she gave birth to her first child, Marianne Trump Berry, a United States federal judge, followed by Frederick Jr., Elizabeth, and Donald Trump, 45th President of the United States, and then Robert. Now, I don't know if this occurs to you that there is a spiritual heritage. We've been talking about this. Last week, I, I drew a beautiful rendition of a double helix DNA, you may remember. And we talked about in these little, in these little DNA dimensions here, we find things like even memory they're finding now is locked in there. 
as well as your heritage, okay? Your heritage is locked in there. And so as we talked about, researchers have found out that the things that we put in our mind and in our heart, they're actually stored in our DNA. And they're then transmitted to our children and our children's children. So the very thoughts that you have, the things that you've committed unto God, the scriptures you've committed unto them, they have a trace memory of those things going out generations to generations. So in, in essence, you can affect people that you will never meet in your future uh, genealogy by what you do today, what you think today, and how you invest yourself in the kingdom of God. So they don't just carry on your physical traits. They carry on not only your mental traits, but they also carry on spiritual dimensions, both good and bad. And that's why the Bible says that for those who love God, he will extend what they do to the, th the good to the thousandth generation to those who love him. So you can literally impact thousand generations into the future, which is pretty amazing when you begin to think about what God is up to. As I began to, to look into the Word of God and study, uh, a couple of things began to come to mind. One of them was this idea of a shadow, and the next was that of a secret place. The Bible refers to both. We're going to take you on a journey through that. I hope it's going to be relevant. I hope you're going to tie into it. But here's the first thought I want you to grab onto, and that is you can only have a shadow if you stand in the light. If you stand in the darkness, you never have a shadow. But in the light, you have a shadow. And of course, we want to talk about more than physical light. We want to talk about spiritual light. When you stand in the light of God, you project a shadow of God's presence. The more intense the light, the more intense the shadow. The word shadow, actually, it comes from a Greek word from the Latin. It's the word umbra. It's where we get our word umbrella. And when you hold an umbrella over you in the sun, it's, it's, it's basically intercepting the sun. And you can move that umbrella anywhere you will, but it will, and it will cast a different shadow. So as we process through that, I want you to begin to think about how the shadow of God on you is reflected and what the purpose of that shadow is. The other thing I want you to understand is this. There are distinctive realms available when we enter into his presence. So let's try to illustrate this. I was kind of struck by this word, realm, because it really is, starts out with the word real. And I want you to remember this because it's going to help you as a memory, to jog your memory when you start to pray. The Bible tells us there's some things that we need to do when we pray. And one of the things we, we do is we ask, we seek, we knock, and then we find. And this is really the purpose of prayer, is it not? To find, to get an answer. You, you know, you're sick and you say, I need an answer. You don't have a job. I need an answer. You don't have a relationship going. I need a relationship. And prayer is all about that. It's never supposed to be therapeutic alone. It's never just supposed to make you feel better or feel like you have did some religious duty. It's supposed to literally change and bring heaven to earth. Amen. I mean, that song we sing about, bring, you know, let heaven come. Let, why do we want heaven to come? Because earth is messed up. Am I right? We need something better than what we got, and we know in heaven they've got great resources. So, God, would you bring that to here? Jesus knew that. So what did he do? When he told us how to pray, he says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, 
Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, here it is, on earth as it already is in heaven. So he was saying pray heaven down to earth and bring that in. You see, God, where God dwells, he dwells in what he refers to as the secret place, and he invites us in to the secret place. I'm going to tell you this, that the secret place is the only place you find the answers. God has a secret place. He wants you engaged in the secret place. So God reveals secrets of the kingdom to those who seek him. You see, the closer you seek God, the more the world makes sense. The further you are from him, the more perplexed and fearful you are. I got a text from a college student in our church, and I love her dearly, and she was afraid last Monday about the North Korean bombing of L.A. And she, she wrote a very sincere uh, text to me, and, I, and she said, what do I do? And I said, hide. And a little aggravated with me, she texts back and she said, no, really. And I said, really, hide. That's a good strategy. If there's a bomb coming at you, duck. I told her that not to aggravate her, but I wanted to force her to stand on her two, own two spiritual feet. You cannot let fear dictate you emotionally. You have to let God be your guide. You have to be, let God. She got back to me said, you're exactly right. That's what I needed to hear. You see, when we realize that there is nothing that comes up against us that we cannot handle in God, that God didn't design for our own purpose, and it, when we think, well, here's the worst-case scenario, God says, no, that's, that's a good scenario because I'm there in the midst of you. When you go through the fires, you shall not be burned, the Scripture says. When you walk through the waters, they will not overflow you. You see, God has got to always be in the position of our strength, our fortress, a strong tower, the Bible says, that we run into. You see, God has a secret place. I want to take you to Psalm 91, verse 1. It says, he who dwells in the secret place. Did you notice the word dwell? Say it with me. Dwell. That means not just kind of go over and look at it. It means dwell. Get in the secret place, live there, stay there, because I'm going to speak to you there. you got to go in the secret place. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. When I find my dwelling place in him, the shadow of the Almighty overcomes me, protects me, guides me in everything I do. I need the secret place. Amen? You need the secret place as well. When do I need it? I need it during times of tragedy. What do I do when tragedy comes? Typically, what we do is we call up our friends, our family. We say, what are we going to do? You know, I've got a tragedy here. What do I do? And they will give you some advice. But they can't speak for God to you directly. You want to hear from God in the secret place. You want to know in a time of tragedy, I know what God is saying. I know what God is up to. I know what God is doing, and I know exactly how to respond. You're going to get wisdom that nobody else has because you're going to get it directly from God and not through some intermediary. That's the good news, amen? You see, the Bible says in Psalm 119, you have made me wiser than all my teachers, for your word has guided me. Think about that. I can read the Word of God, and, and a third grader can read the Word of God and be smarter than a guy with a Ph.D. because he's getting the mind of Christ. 
You can't beat the mind of Christ, amen? During times of uncertainty, you need that secret place. When things are uncertain, I mean, has there ever been a time in recent history that you can remember things are much more uncertain than they are now? I don't even know how to react. Do I react to South Korea? Nor, I mean, North Korea, do I react to that? Or Las Vegas? Or how about some hurricanes and some wildfires? If that's not enough, the political cartel in Washington can't figure out which way to go and what to do in the whole process. All they can really get on their schedule is taking vacations. And I'm wondering, what is going on in our world? And so my mind can go there really quick. I can spin myself into a tailspin without even stopping. And then God says, be still and know that I am God. Just let that sink in. Be still. Everything that's been in your head right now, be still and know that I am God. Though the mountains quake, though they slip into the midst of the sea, there is a city and builder whose maker is God, as God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. He burns the chariot with fire. He breaks the nations. And then it says, be still and know that I am God. When the world is spinning out of control, be still and know that I am God. During times of inner hunger, when things are going on inside of you, you just feel like a, a big void inside of you, and you go, how do I fill the void? What do I, fill, what do I put in there? I've got this hunger, hunger for God, hunger for love, hunger for relationships, hunger, 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 hunger. God says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. I will fill everything that you need inside of you. Just trust me. I love what uh, the writing of, of Sir Francis Drake. Anybody heard of this guy? I mean, remember back in school, Sir Francis Jake? Yeah, you kind of remember. He had a cool name. Nobody names their kids Sir Francis Jake anymore. But um, you think about this guy wrote in 1577. He wrote something. I'm going to give you part of it. And it says, it's the title of it is Disturb Us, Lord. Would you ever pray that? Would that ever be your prayer? God, would you disturb me? No. God, would you comfort me? Would you take away all my pain? Give it to all my enemies? You know what I love about the Bible is the Bible is not like this hidden book, you know, like there's not real guys in there. I love it because you'll read the Psalms, and he starts out by saying, God, I hate all my enemies. Would you kill them, grind their, their, their bones into dust, make all their kids ugly? You know, I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of how they go. And then at the end he goes, oh, but, you know, second thought, God, just, uh, you know, just vindicate me. The Bible doesn't try to hide the re, the, that there are real people who struggle to find the real God. We don't live in isolation. We can't live in phony Christianity. We can't give pat answers every time we turn around. We have to give and say, sometimes you just have to say, I don't know. I really don't know. I did an interview on Fox and Friends on Saturday morning, and you know it was prompted out of an article I wrote on Fox News. And one of the things I said, I don't know. I live in a divine tension of I don't know. But it, when I live in that tension, that's where I find my faith the strongest because I affirm that God is in control and all loving and all this other stuff, and then I'm dealing with all this other stuff over here that man didn't cause like a hurricane. I don't know, but it's there that I meet him. It's there that I hear the still small voice that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hears my voice, I will come in and fellowship with him and he with me. That's what I do know about life. So as we think about this uh, this poem that he wrote, he said, disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves. When our dreams have come true, 
because we have dreamed too little, when we have arrived because we sailed too close to the shore. Don't you love that? Disturb us, Lord, when the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. We have ceased to dream of eternity in our efforts to build a new earth. We have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. God disturbs us. God shakes up our world because he's going to force us to pray. He's going to force us to change the world. If you won't do it on your own, I'll help you. I'll help you change the world. I'll disrupt your world. I'll disturb your emotional being. And then you're going to go, you know what, God, I think I hear you now. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. I'm going to be what you've called me to be. A shadow is an interception of the light. Think about this. I am intercepting. I know I'm looking here, and I look over here at my shadow, and I can see my shadow, and I'm much taller than I really am, like that, much thinner than I really am. I just need to live in the shadow all the time, forget the mirror. The mirrors are not my friend. Hey, let me ask you all just a question. Get off a little bit. Have you ever been in a dressing room at a mall trying to unclose? Anybody ever done this? What is wrong with the mirrors in those rooms? Am I right? I mean, the light's bad. The mirror is like a fattening mirror. I walk in there and I go, I'm not that fat. I know I'm not that fat, you know. And so you know what I do? I don't even try clothes on anymore. I buy everything I want. I take them home because I have a mirror that makes me look much, much better at home and there. And sometimes I don't even try the clothes on for a week or two. Sammy said, aren't you going to try them on? I said, no, why not? I said, I want I want to live in the hope that I will fit in those clothes. Just give me another week of hope, right? And then in the end, they all go back. But um, anyway, we live in the shadow, the interception of light. Acts chapter 5, I love this story. It's an amazing story. It's one I reread all the time, and I think that is an amazing story. Acts chapter 5, verse 14, all believers uh, and the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets, laid them on the beds and the couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on them. And I'm going, what? Wait a minute. There was such a miraculous move of God bringing about miracles in that day that not everybody could get close to Peter. They said, let's just, let's just bring him over here, lay him along the street where he's walking so that the sun... It's right, and it will lay them on this side so the shadow will hit them, and they'll be healed by the shadow. And I read that, and I go, God, that's what I want to live in. I want to live in a sense where people come into this building and they're healed, not because there was someone with a gift or not because of some message or music. It was because the presence of God was so thick and so real that you experienced the presence and the awareness of God, and there was a healing that happened. There was a restoration that happened. There was a clarity of mind happened because you came into the presence of Almighty God. See, we exist to host the presence of God. We don't exist just to gather. We exist to host his presence, to say, God, we want, to, we want this place to be a place where you feel welcome. When people encounter uh, uh, something, they encounter you and not, not us. It goes on to say, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities of Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And I look at that and I go, that's what I want, God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who healed yesterday is the God who heals today. Amen? 
You know, I love to talk about our healing stories. I think the testimonies of Jesus, they're, they're a word of prophecy to all of us. When we hear about what God does, it says, if God could do that for you, he can do that for me. You may remember it was about a month ago or so, I showed two brain scans, two weeks apart, of a girl that had a brain tumor, and then we got a message back from the, head, the, the neurosurgeon at Hogue Hospital saying, I can't explain it, it's a miracle. After prayer, the, the brain tumor was gone. You know why I tell that story? You know I love it? Because it's medically verified. The only stories we tell on healing in here are medically verified because that eliminates a skeptic. You say, well, I don't know if I believe that. You will never experience it then. You cannot experience what you do not believe. You say, well, I don't know. You know, I, you know, I believe God saved me, but I don't know about that, all that stuff. How is it possible that God could save you and he could not heal you? How is it possible that God could save you and he couldn't do other cool things? Amen? We got a cool God. You know, the Bible's not a science book, but it's got science in it. When it's got science in it, it's accurate. People say, ah, yeah, I don't know about that, you know. I say, okay, well, you explain to me, genius. How does Jeremiah the prophet know in 700 B.C. that the earth is round? He says God sets above the circle of the earth, and he, and it, he hangs it on nothing. You go back and read the scientists. They, they got a flat earth. They got pillars holding this thing up. They got all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And that's only 600 years ago. I'm going back 2,700 years. I'm quoting a prophet. He had too much information to be getting it from Jeremiah. He was getting it from somebody else. How about Jonah? Here's Jonah. He talks about subterranean mountains in the ocean. We didn't know about that until we got a submarine. How did Jonah know that? How did, how did Job know that the outer space was frozen like a stone? We know it's only one degree short of absolute zero. Why is it John the apostle said he stood before a crystal sea in heaven? That's a frozen sea. Why did he use that terminology? I'm looking at things and I'm saying there's a mysteries here. Our God is so big. Amen? He, he, he knows everything that's going on. And, and he just he says, I just in it. let me come in. Let me come into that place. I was reading in C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite uh, authors. I, I like him because he was a skeptic that went to Oxford, uh, then became professor of medieval history. He was so aggravated when he first went there because the two smartest people in the school were Christians. And he thought, what am I going to do with this? J.R.R. Tolkien, you remember that? Lord of the Rings? Okay, solid believer. He was an influence in Lewis's life. And Chesterton, another guy you may not have heard as much about, they used to sit in a little pub there in, in Oxford, and they would strategize how they were going to sneak the gospel into literature. Think about that. And Lewis wrote this after coming to faith in Christ. He said, nothing can seem extraordinary until you have discovered what is ordinary. You know, it's ordinary. When you face a problem, you go to your friends. You go to the expert. You're facing a health crisis. You go to the doctor, and you get the best doctor you can, and you follow the best advice you possibly can. That's ordinary. That's what planet Earth does. Once you get the baseline, what's ordinary, now you can start to experience what is extraordinary. He went on to write these words. He said, belief in miracles, far from depending on the ignorance of the laws of nature, is only possible insofar as those laws are known. Once I know how this world works, then I, everything else that doesn't look like that is of God. Then I step out into the night sky, 
in the velvet blackness, and I see a billion light pricks of light coming through the velvet darkness of the night, and then the scripture comes to me, the heavens declare the glory of God, the ferment showeth forth his handiwork. Day in and day out, there is not a place where his voice is not heard. It runs the entire circuit. You mean the psalmist knew that we don't, aren't the center of the universe, that everything revolves around the sun? That's what Psalm 19 said. Scientists didn't know that for a long time. God's cool. He's the coolest scientist in the class. Put your hands together. Give him a Amen. The shadow of God will lead you to Christ. You know, I like to tell people I hate religion, and they go, you're a pastor, how can you hate religion? I just hate religion. Religion is all about man trying to please God, all trying to find God in his own kind of way. You know, and I don't really dig that. I told this story in the first one. I promised myself I wouldn't tell it again, but I'm going to do it again. So when I was growing up, I was in a kind of a more liturgical church and didn't know Christ. And my buddy Jim Shockley, he was my friend, and we did everything together. And and so uh, when they needed somebody to light the candles, we volunteered. We'll light the candles. The organ plays, you know, and then we put the little robes on, and we come down with the little candle thing. We'd light the candles, and then we'd go back downstairs, and we'd take our robes off and smoke cigarettes. I never really liked them, but it was cool because Jim did it, and he made it look cool. You ever done that? They're like, it looks cool, but I don't really like it, but I'm not going to tell him it's not cool because then I'd be uncool. And then the organ would play again. We'd put our robes back on, get our little candle snuffers. I think that's what they were called. We'd go up, the, you know, walk down the aisle like we were super pious. We'd put the little candles out. I did, I, that was religious. It did me no good. But I remember seeing the cross, and I remember hearing about Jesus dying and rising from the dead. And, and I really believed that, but I didn't know what that meant. And I was afraid to ask, I was always afraid to ask this question, why did Jesus die on the cross? And I thought everybody knew, and if I asked, I would look stupid. So I never ask anybody why Jesus died on the cross. It would be years later as a, as a college student that I would find Christ. I didn't know God was painting shadows. Even that walking down the aisle and that frustration with not understanding what was going on was a shadow that he was leading me to himself. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says this, So let no one, let no one act as your judge in regard to drink, in regard to festival or New moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. So here's what he said. You have a holiday like Easter. You have a holiday like Christmas. That's not the substance. It's only the shadow that leads you to the substance, Jesus Christ. You keep a day holy like Sunday. That's not the substance. That's only the picture that's supposed to lead you to Christ. It's the shadow to get you to Christ. You practice certain dietary things. You don't eat something. You don't drink something. You fast. You put ashes on your head. Whatever you do, those are not the substance. The substance is Jesus Christ. He's always trying to point us. And then it's, all of a sudden, you know, as God like spoke to me, he says, you know, you can be religious and not know God. I was religious. I didn't know God. You too and, and me and the world can be religious and not know him. You can be good and not know God. I like good people. I like them better than bad people. I'd rather hang around good people than bad people. But good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven 
People who've met Jesus go to heaven. You say, well, do you think that's fair? I'm not God. I can't draw the line. God's got it all figured out. I'm going to let him be God. I'm going to be man. It seems to work better that way. Amen? You can be sincere and not know God. As a little kid, I, I, my dad had a, a Ford Galaxy, one of those old ones, and it had the great big window in the back, and, you know, they were like 40 feet wide and 100 feet long, and, you know, they were just great. They got four miles a gallon. And I used to lay in the back seat, and I'd look up through that window, and I'd look at the clouds, and I'd wonder about God. I thought, I want to know you, God. The thunder would come. Lived in Denver where it rained. And the thunder would come, and I'd say, Dad, what, where does that come from? And he said, oh, that's God pulling his potato wagon across heaven. I don't know what dads say some dumb things. But I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Right? You know when you're like six? Yeah, of course. Well, how is he going to get the potatoes out of the other side of heaven? But I would just wonder about God, and I wanted to know God. And I think in every one of us, there's this wonder. I just, how do I know him? I just want to know him, and I want him to know me. And when I go to him, I want to, I want to feel like I'm with a familiar friend, you know? And he really wants the best for me. You know, there's a scripture that's found in John 14, 6, and Jesus said, um, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. I just think about those three words, he, ways he described himself. I am the way. I'm the only way. I am the truth. I'm the only truth. I am the life. I'm the only life. And here's the real kicker. And no one is going to go to the Father except through me. So you're not going to get there by being religious. You're going to be there by being good. You're not going to get there by being sincere. You're going to get there by Jesus Christ. Jesus demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died on the cross. You know how much he loves us? He put his hands out and said, this is how much I love you. This is how much I love you. You know what I love about the cross? It's a plus symbol. It's not a negative. Religion is a negative, but Jesus is a plus. Isn't that good? He's positive. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He didn't say, I've come to screw up your life and make you miserable. That's what religion does. Amen? Jesus just loves you. He loves you right where you are. You know, the one thing I want for you is I want you to know him in your heart of hearts. I want you to get this stuff. This is all important and what we've talked about. Some of it's going to stick, but more than anything else, I just want you to know him if you don't know him. And if you know him, I want you to draw in closer to him and find that secret place and see those answers to prayers and be a life change in your world. Amen? Let's stand together. If you just bow your heads, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray a prayer. I'm just going to invite you to pray this same prayer with me right where you stand or sit. And it's really a prayer of knowing God. If you, you say, I really do know him, I have no doubt in my mind, then you can, you can use this time to pray for someone who doesn't. It goes like this. Dear Lord, I know you love me. I believe you died on the cross. You rose from the dead to give me life. 
I believe your word that when I call on your name, you will save me. Save me, Lord Jesus. Come into my heart and change me from the inside out. I don't want to be religious. I want to be a Jesus follower. And with your head still bowed and just eyes closed, if that was your prayer, just thank him in your own words. You might just say, thank you, Jesus. But you just had a God encounter. It's that simple to find Jesus. Religion is complicated, but Jesus is simple.